welcome back to Diversity on Screen. This is our episode for International Women's Day, and we will be discussing Roma, directed by Alfonso Cuaron. Hi, Ryan. How are you feeling today? I'm good today, thank you. How are you? You know what? I'm I'm feeling good actually. I've got a new haircut. Mm-hmm. Um, Looks great. It's raining, so that's great. Um, so yeah, it's Wednesday. <laughs> I'm normally pretty optimistic on Wednesdays, actually. Like we're nearly there. I mean, mm. not really nearly there, but it is important to enjoy every day of your life. So you know what? Wednesdays are great. Yes, that's a long answer. I'm fine, thank you. <laughs> and what did you think of Roma? It's it's it feels long. I, I don't actually remember the runtime. I think I think it's about two and a half hours. When I was halfway through watching it, I was just having a little look at some articles, and um, one of them was Roma is the most boring film I've ever seen. Don't like other critics make you think otherwise. It was like its slow style justifies perhaps a short, but not a two and a half hour feature length film. So I believe it's two and a half okay. hours. <laughs> That's stuck in my mind. But yeah, before we introduce the you know the film and themes. What were your first impressions when, when you know, when the, the end credits rolled? What did you think? It was, yeah, I enjoyed the film. I think it being black and white and being, you know, stylistic, it's a very beautiful film. It's, it's the composition of, of the shots and, and stuff like that and the editing. It's really, really nice to see. But yeah, it's it a- was a long, slow film. I was just going to say, it's a film that has pretty privilege, I think. (laughs) Yes, yeah, yeah. Adds to the film. It makes it a lot better. And it gets away with a lot more, a bit like pretty people, I think. (laughs) I think, for me, about 40 minutes in, I was like, what have I done? Why am I doing this? This is so slow. And then I took a little... I, you know, I took myself aside. Do, people, do other people say that? Because that's definitely something I say. Well, I took yourself aside. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've heard it before, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I had a little conversation with myself and realised that, you know, it's different. It's not the normal, like, oh, my God, and then next this, like, bang, 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 kind of plot-driven blockbuster vibe that I think we're used to. And I was like, okay, take a moment, Gigi, and just see what you see and enjoy the film for what it is and try and just dive into its waters and I did and that also coincided with the plot actually starting to emerge so who knows how much of an impact that conversation had but I did by the end I was like this is actually quite a special film I think it's one of those films it's a bit like it's a bit like in my English degree you know we we had to read novels that you don't necessarily like for instance have you heard of James Joyce's Ulysses yes yeah if you're actually reading it, you're probably not enjoying it. Let's be honest, everybody. <laughs> you're probably not enjoying it. What is enjoyable is reading all of the stuff afterwards and about how it's quite groundbreaking and how it was doing something new. So I think I'm trying to make sure my enjoyment doesn't translate into how I perceive the quality of the film. So I think I think it was I think it's a Ulysses of the film industry. <laughs> but it was released in 2018 and set in 1971. It takes place in a neighbourhood in Mexico City called Roma. It's an ordinary story about the mundane occurrences of everyday life with a backdrop of political unrest, most notably the massacre of Corpus Christi. How quickly, I was wondering, did the political unrest become apparent to you? 
only when Cleo goes to buy a cot. Obviously, there's there's protests in the street. So that that moment is when I realised that okay, there's unrest going on, political unrest. There's a lot of men with sticks. A lot of men with sticks. Yeah, that's like a, a throughput throughout the whole film. Men with sticks. Forget kids with guns. It's men with sticks. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to make that joke. You know what? Actually, I noticed it a little bit earlier. So in the opening scene, um, not the opening scene, in the in the opening of the film, there's the children are talking around the dinner table about someone they know being shot. And I was like, oh, my goodness, that's that's not something children Mm. should be talking about at the dinner table. So nonchalantly. But we have a a great cast, mostly made up of non-actors, which is something I'll get onto a little bit later. But the film opens up with a floor being washed. At first, I was like, "Mm, have I missed something here? But it plays for over three minutes. And this is a moment I think we realise that this film is a little bit different from others. It's not plot driven or dramatic. Instead, it recreates life realistically. And when you're looking down at the floor as it's being washed, you see a little plane fly over in the reflection from the ground, which is actually mirrored in the end scene. But instead, you're looking up, which I'll touch on a little bit more later. But it's, of course, a black and white film, which I normally think in this day and age is a bit of a like, like the only thing I can compare it to is thatched houses. When people build thatched houses, it just makes me annoyed. I'm like, why have you built a thatched house? Like we don't we don't need any more thatched houses. They've already happened. So I think when I first watched this film, it just seemed a bit for me, the black and white choice without really thinking about it immediately seemed pretentious that it was you know very it was a nostalgic film that wanted to forget about you know daily digital life even though it's set in a time where they would have had color 1971 but actually I was after um, listening to a few interviews with Cuaron it's because he thinks memories are black and white which is interesting because if you think about it I think my dreams are in black and white. Are your dreams and memories in black and white? No, I I don't think mine are in black and white. I think I do remember them. Actually, remembering them is probably different. Oh, God, that's another layer, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. But is, is the memory of it the thing itself, if you're not really experiencing it? I don't know. That's what I'm saying. The memory is remembering what happened and I think you do remember in black and white uh, well at least I do anyway I think color definitely isn't as present and and this is something he discusses because when you have memories there's so much that surrounds them it's not just what you see it's what you can hear it's what you can smell it's what you can touch it's all of your senses so he in addition to wanting to have it black and white because he believes memories are black and white. He also did it to enhance the sensory experience of the film because when colour is taken away, you experience other elements of the film a little bit more. It's a bit like, you know, they say when, when people lose their sights, their, their hearing becomes like much more highly attuned. So we're introduced to Clea's life through her work, which seems to define her in this film. She's played by Yalitza Aparicio, who actually wasn't a professional actress. This was her first film and notably her only film to to date. She hasn't done any other films. She's not, I I suppose, she's she's not an actor. And 
a lot of the characters in the films were played by people who weren't actors. And Cuaron said this was because he wanted to embrace chaos. And he actually, in the casting process, was looking for doppelgangers for the people. So this whole film is basically a tribute to his memory. So Cleo is a reincarnation of his beloved nanny from when he was a child. His father also left um, in a very similar way to what happens in the film. And he had a really interesting method to trying to recreate the memory as realistically as possible. So actors were actually only given their own lines because in life you've only got your own lines and there are so many elements that you can't control. And every take for the film, they they recorded differently. So you know how with a lot of films, they'll just do the same thing again and again relentlessly until they get the one they want. He would do one and then do a different one and then do a different one and then choose whichever he liked the most. And then another amazing element to the film that we've discussed are these smooth camera angles that sort of sleepily move from side to side and make you feel a bit like a voyeur as the film lets us watch the eventful moments of life as they unfold. So the choice behind this, um, I I realised from Kioron's interview, was because he wanted viewers to take their own meaning from mundane scenes. And that's why you've got these really wide shots as well, where there's so much going on in it, because in real life, you know, your story isn't just what's happening to you on a close up of, you know, you talking to the person next to you is everything is going on all of the time. And by doing that, he allows the viewer to take their own meaning from the scenes rather than, you know, forcing their focus on a single character or a single element. This this style of like camera panning at being widescreen as well is used really well. It, this is all going to come back to I'm a big horror fan. So James Wan, who does like The Conjuring and Insidious, he uses these same shots, same like slow panning widescreen shots to add in like, say, maybe you'll see a ghost in the left hand corner of the, the shot. But some people won't see that. They'll just think it's just a panning shot of the room. But if you're keen-eyed and you you know the film and you're looking out for it, or you just so happen to see it in the corner of your eye, you'll see the ghost or this figure standing there in the corner, and then it will just pan away from it. So this technique really does allow the watcher to be just watching a room and get out of that shot whatever they want to. Yeah, I completely agree. It gives it it gives the film more of an individual experience rather than a collective experience. Yeah which isn't something we're we're used to, I think, or at least I'm not used to. Usually when I watch a film, everybody gasps at the same time, everybody laughs at the same time. So to have these films adding in these interesting layers, is it's really beautiful that the viewer can take their own meaning from it and you can have a different experience to the person next to you, which is, you know, is much more similar to what it is in life. Not everybody has the same perspective and not everybody sees things the same. So in... If cinema is supposed to imitate life, then I think these wide pans and bigger shots are doing a better job than the close-ups. So just to, just to return to the plot, we see Cleo going about her chores, um, which includes um, looking after the children, cleaning things up as she's their nanny slash maid. And this is the scene I was talking about earlier. The children are talking about um, somebody being shot at the dinner table introducing the central theme to the film of political unrest. And then for me, this was amplified when in in the next scene, the children start to play soldiers with their toy guns and start shooting each other. And 
it sort of showed how for for children living in in a state of political unrest sometimes those lines between fantasy and reality are really really blurred it reminds me of um an exhibition I saw when I was in Amsterdam at um it's called Foam the photography museum and it was a collection that looked at the experience of children living in war zones and you'd think when I first went in there I thought it was going to be really really harrowing but it, it wasn't it was harrowing but not as sort of sharply as you'd expect instead of these like really graphic images it was kids playing football with a tank on the pitch and they were just running around it and trying to like meander around it so they could continue with their games or playing like with marbles and there's like soldiers with these ginormous guns stood next to them and I think it, it reminds me of a, sh- a, sh- a quote from Peep Show as well um, where they're playing war and he says um, it's just boring and terrifying a lot like actual war and I, I thought that was a really realistic um, depiction of how it, it feels to be somebody in a place of political unrest of course there's there's those horrible like terrifying blood-curdling moments but a lot of it is them just trying to get on with their everyday and I think that's what this film is trying to show so she continues playing with the children there's this really beautiful moment where um, the the smallest child is laying down pretending to be dead and she goes up to him and says, oh, oh are you dead? And he said, yes, I'm dead. And she lies down with him and says, I'm dead too. And these opening scenes is when you start to see her really like beautiful relationship with the children. I was reading that it, it was showing a different parenting style. So some parents choose to lead by example. So they'll be, you know, strong, resilient, intelligent, and hope that their children will recreate that. Some of them choose to be quite pushy and try and lead their children down a very specific path. And Cleo's style is just much more gentle than that. She just really, really gets into their world and sort of enjoys it with them. And you see that, especially with the smallest child, when he has, he says a lot of weird things throughout the film. I don't know if you picked up on it. Like, oh, I used to be a sailor, but now um, before I died. And these weird things he says, and she just goes along with with it with him, which as she sort of reminded me of more like a primary school teacher versus a secondary school teacher, just really having these like intimate, close moments with this child and, and letting their imagination run wild. Then these mundane moments are disrupted as Antonio, the father, arrives home. And there's this, I think it might be the only funny scene in the film, actually, I'm thinking, where he's trying to park his car in, in their tiny garage and then steps in dog poo and gets very, very upset. And I think this scene captures his frustration with domestic life and the constraints that come with it, that he is trying to live his everyday life, but every day it seems like the garage is coming in a little bit closer and he's having to manoeuvre around that and is obviously feeling very trapped. And as we're trying to decipher Clea's relationship with the family, we watch her sit down to watch TV with them. And I thought this was a scene that really, really showed the duality of her relationship with them. At, at one moment, she's really, really close with them, sat, you know, sat down on the sofa with all of them watching the TV. And in the next, she's asked to fetch tea and has to go and do that because it's her job. And how for those, you know, live in nannies and live in maids, the, the, the line between work and pleasure becomes very, very blurred. Then in the next scene, um, we watch the frame follow Adela and Cleo as they run to their lunch day, which I thought was actually that's another like lightly funny scene mm. where they're met by Raymond and Furman for a double date. And while Raymond and Adela head to the cinema, Cleo's goes back to Furman and plays, hold on, 
scratch the record, this is the funniest scene. We watch as Furman demonstrates his martial arts training whilst completely naked, using the shower pole as his stick. And how, how did you feel watching this scene? Because I'm, I'm struggling to put it into words. Uh, yeah, like I said, man with stick. <laughs> Another man with stick. It's very, very strange of him to to show off his prowess like that. And he's so serious. That's yeah. <laughs> and you can see Cleo's trying not to laugh, I think. <laughs> and then she's just completely silent, isn't she? Which mm. I think is is what she falls back on a lot of the time in the film. I think I think you and I have that, that when I don't know what to say, I say too much. And I think when you don't know what to say, you say less. And I think she's she's definitely more in your camp. However, the, yeah, the, the comedy of this scene is later undermined as we realise he's part of the Alcones, who I'll get onto the context for it later, but were an instrumental and aggressive force in the massacre. So again, we, we return to this domestic life and we watch Adela and Cleo going through their everyday work and um, Antonio sets off to go off for his research. His wife looks visibly upset, is like really, really trying to kiss him and he's just not really kissing her back. And you know something's a bit wrong, but it doesn't have that sense of impending doom that he's never going to come back. And I think that's what's quite interesting about this film is that there's so many uninteresting moments that the, the interesting moments almost pass you by, a bit like they do, I, I think, in real life. That you, you might have, once something happens, you look back and you're like, oh, there were a lot of signs and I just sort of walked past them. And I think this, this moment is one of them. And I think another moment is when the family later on are going to the cinema. And once we realise that he's left with his mistress, we see him with her. At the, um, when their family are going to the cinema, and he's he's on the he's on the screen for a, it must be less than five seconds. He just runs across, and if you weren't paying attention, you would miss it. And I think that's a, bit, a lot like real life that these moments can really pass you by. I think I missed that. Oh really? Yeah. That's the thing. This film demands all of your attention, mm. but then also not really all of your attention at the same time. And that's I, I think that this is a bit like what you what you were saying about those horror films. I, I saw the ghost and you didn't see the yeah, ghost. Exactly. <laughs> and you have a completely different experience coming out of it. So there's also such a connection in the narrative between Sophia and Cleo. So as Sophia is being abandoned by Antonio as he's setting off for work now, that's paralleled in the next scene between Cleo and Furman where she tells him that she's pregnant. And while Sophia and Antonio have the big house in the car, Cleo and Furman have the back of the cinema. So when she tells him, I don't know about you, but my instinct was that he was instantly going to be angry, that he was going to be really, really difficult about it. But he doesn't. He says, oh, that's good, isn't it? Then he rather suspiciously says he's going to the bathroom. And we watch this really long scene where Cleo slowly comes to the realisation that he's not coming back. How, how quickly did you realise that he wasn't coming back? As soon as he got up. Yeah, I think it was the same as me. But you could tell she had this, this hope. This scene plays out in real time. And I think that's a bit like what we've touched on earlier about how it's interesting and boring at the same time. And the film doesn't, it doesn't cut to reveal that Furman isn't coming back. There's not a big build up that, oh, what's he going to do? It just unfolds in real time like it would in real life. And for me, this recalled the opening scene, which 
that demands patience in the viewer. It seems like to me that that first scene was there to say, this is going to be a very slow film. And if you don't like that, please leave. There's no smash cuts. There's no big drama builds. There's just, you know, drifting frames as we're present in, in Cleo's life. So this, this is called a, a mise-en-scene. And as we were talking about earlier, these wide frames show that the world exists beyond your perspective. And it has these really, really wide shots and long takes. And this style is summed up by the director who says, the film doesn't give more weight to character than the environment. How, how did you find this as a style? Like, did you connect with it? Did you enjoy it? Did you think it was pretentious? I think there's two different styles in it where it is black and white. So I, I made a comparison in, in the She's Gotta Have It episode where having it as black and white drives the story more as the characters rather than, you know, the scenes around it and stuff like that. So in Roma, it's it's black and white, but it's also the shots are always widescreen. So the black and white tributes it to be more of a character-driven story, but then the widescreen shots kind of take it away from the characters because mm. in, in one shot there could be 50-odd people in, in that one shot. And you don't know who all these people are. You might see Cleo maybe center left of the screen talking to someone. And I think that's that's why I struggled in that first half of the film, because I was like, I have no idea what's going on. I don't know anything about any of the characters. I'm not invested in them because you're you have to work to understand things about them. It's it's the absolute opposite of expositional dialogue, which is what we discussed in the Shang-Chi episode that um, in that film, Aquafina has a lot of dialogue that just explains exactly what's happening in the film. So for, I assume, children who are watching Marvel movies who struggle to read between the lines. And this film does the complete opposite. You're supposed to, you know, every object in the frame is carefully selected to show something about that character and something about that world. And you really have to focus on the elements to draw conclusions about the characters. They're not going to tell you. And it's weird because when you look at it that way, actually there's a lot more going on in the scenes than a single close-up on somebody revealing something shocking so you have to work a lot harder for it so I wonder if that's a bit of a miss a misstep by some viewers that it's boring when actually there's there's just a hell of a lot going on then the film cuts to Christmas and you can sort of see the change in in the seasons as wet weather people are dressed in more clothes but for me, this narrative leap seemed a little unusual for the film that's, you know, is so determined to stay true to reality in real time. And for, for this moment, it strays away from the beauty of everyday life and leans into plot. So Cleo is visibly pregnant and it's clear Antonio hasn't returned home. Sophia tells the children he's still on his way to work, but we overhear conversations on the phone and from other characters that confirm otherwise. It's not you know explicitly revealed to you until that moment when her son overhears her on the phone but you sort of are, are told to infer it and I think that's a bit like what's going on for Cleo that she doesn't actually ask questions and have these really direct conversations with people she just gathers information as and when she can as a sort of silent participant in in this middle class family's life so as we're seeing the women Cleo pregnant and Sophia clearly distraught 
we can see that they're like really struggling to come to terms with the abandonment and are going through these motions of motherhood alone. Sophia's at that later stage, you know, with her children, but Cleo is pregnant and still working. And there's there's some some light comedy between her and Adela about, oh, I can still carry the bags, probably because she needs to work because she needs the money for the baby. Then Sophia takes it upon herself to take Cleo to the hospital and get her checked. And Sophia's road to independence is about as bumpy as her drive to the hospital, which includes her, yeah, she drags the entire left driver side door down this very, very narrow garage that we mentioned earlier and crashes into a bus, I think. I think it's a bus. And we can see that she just doesn't seem very bothered by it. And I think it's one of those things where everything around her is so chaotic that writing off her car is the least of her problems. However, we do kind of see that Sophia has an ulterior motive for taking Cleo to the hospital because when Cleo goes off to get sort of checked and her pregnancy is confirmed, we come back and we see that Sophia is talking to the doctors, asking where is Antonio? He hasn't come home. What's going on? And then this is interrupted by an earthquake, a very, very mild one, but it's that first real interruption by mother nature that we see in the film which we see throughout and the next one is the fire so whilst the family are on a family visit a fire breaks out and it's actually to do with the political unrest so it's, it was actually a, a like a human set fire somebody set fire to the, the forest because there were debates over who owned the land and then as they return home there's this really really heavy rain that's just making it difficult to do their everyday life. And we watch the characters battle with nature, a disruptive force that's outside of their control, a bit like the events that are going on in their life. So these slow, mostly uneventful moments in life are contrasted by a fleeting moment of drama. So as we mentioned earlier, they're packing up in their very, very slow way that they have done in this film and um, are getting their stuff together to go to the movies and as they're going to the movies we see Antonio rush past with his, his other woman so he's supposedly he's been doing research for six months far far away when actually he's just been around the corner and this is a moment as we mentioned earlier that, that you could just miss you could just hear a knock at the door or you know look down at your crisps and you would miss it and again this betrayal is mirrored between the two women just after we see Antonio with this other woman, Cleo goes to see Furman and he denies his connection to the baby and actually threatens her with violence. So I'm gonna beat the bleep out of you and your little one, which is just disgusting to hear. And we'll come on to this later, but there's just you know, there's just outright misogyny in, in a lot of this film. But before they have this altercation, she finds him at his martial arts practice and surrounded by what looks like an army of men. And I think that's when you start to realise, oh, something, you know, something's a bit dodgy in here. A bit like when you're watching a film, you're like, mm, this seems like a family, but could also be a cult. And <laughs> they're led by Professor Zovek, who he seems like a, at first, like a good and like motivational, like community person, like trying to help the kids. I don't know, a bit like a, like a, a youth worker something mm. like that almost but it actually becomes a little quite a lot darker than that he's, he's so, also dressed as a luchador yes what is that so luchador is like a mexican wrestler basically 
Oh, like Nacho Libre. Yes, yeah. So he's wearing like the unitard and yeah. Yes, and I think that's why he seemed sort of soft to me at first. Probably, probably because cultural appropriation. That film made wrestling seem like not a serious thing when it may well do within their culture. But okay, so then he does this thing. So he does the tr- the only thing I for our audio listeners, I'll explain it as the tree pose with your hands crossed over your head but he closes his eyes. And at first it doesn't seem like a hard thing to do, but did you try this? No, I haven't tried that. I, I know I probably can't do it. It's so difficult because I do a bit of yoga. So I was like, oh, maybe I'll be all right. Absolutely not. Just the second you close your eyes, I just stacked it. Mm. <laughs> it's really difficult, but, and no one else can do it apart from Cleo. And I think this is the moment in the film that really, really shows how Cleo just doesn't realise quite how special she is because, first of all, she has her eyes closed, so she can't see that anyone else, nobody else can do this. And second of all, everybody else has their eyes closed, so they can't see that she can do it. And she just, again, her her beauty as a person just, just goes unnoticed. Then the unrest ramps up in the film, both domestically and politically. We have that moment with Sophia on the phone confirming that Antonio has been cheating on her and it's never coming back. And her son overhears her. She catches, strikes him and apologises to him within about 10 seconds. And off screen, we hear her beg him not to tell her siblings. And the cinematography choice in this moment, I thought mirrored the essence of the film where the plot is distant, but still very much present in the same way that this discussion between Sophia and her son asking him not to tell his siblings is distant but still still very present. Paco and Tonyo fight over this toy car set and it, it, it seems like it's getting quite dangerous and then Cleo and Adela have a discussion about how Cleo's mum's land has been seized by the government as we view this political unrest again from a personal perspective. Then Sophia drives home drunk, scrapes the car along the garage and we get that pivotal line in the film which is no matter what they tell you we women are always alone and I think that line really speaks to the abandonment that's happening throughout the film to both of the women but I also don't think it quite appreciates that they have each other and they have the children and you know the definition of alone is with nobody but it seems like for her alone means without a man and obviously that's incredibly difficult raising a child without a co-parent and I can't underestimate the difficulty of that but I just thought that word alone was interesting when she was actually saying it to another woman who was there for her and I actually think they form a unit together as a sort of matriarchy to look after the children together this domestic chaos as I've mentioned is reflected in the city where we see the student protests and the unrest in the macrocosm so the wider world amplifies the chaos in the microcosm and vice versa both elements are you know bashing against each other and Cleo is off to buy the cot for her newborn child well her soon-to-be child and she finds herself in the middle of the massacre of Corpus Christi. So it took place on June 10th, 1971. And this is a timestamp that's actually aligned in the narrative. So when Cleo is about to have the drink to her baby's good health, the woman she's with also says, and to a great 1971. So what happened was the Alcones or the Falcons, as the translation is, attacked a student protest march. And the history behind it is even darker 
than you'd imagine. So basically this paramilitary group, which we saw with Professor Zovek, were trained and funded by the government and ordered to attack and kill student protesters. So for this operation, they were instructed to pretend to be students and incite violence so that the police could claim that they were provoked. They attacked them with bamboo sticks, opened fire and actually had snipers on top of buildings. They even hid in ambulances so that when the students had called um, ambulances to, to come and look after them, the Alconas would jump out of them and shoot them. 120 protesters were killed, including a 14-year-old boy. However, the civilians were told not to report injuries or killings by the police. So the official number by the government was only nine people had been killed. And it was just awful to read about. It was basically the students were protesting against a new law that abolished their autonomy and were calling for democratic reform. And many of them had been imprisoned after the last protest. So you might have remembered that the grandma mentioned, she's like, oh, I hope they don't hurt them again, because that's what happened the time before. And many of them had been released by 1971, which led to the protest. And even looking at many years later, for, for a long time, the government denied that the Alconas existed, denied that they funded them and blamed the students for the whole thing. None of the leaders of that, that corrupt government have been held accountable for it. And when the protesters were calling for them to be arrested, it was ruled that it wasn't an individual crime, it was a state crime. But how do you arrest the state? You can't, exactly. So, yeah, how much did you know about this um, this massacre before, before Nothing. the film? Nothing at all. Yeah, neither. neither, and I think this this film really raised the profile of it, because when you Google it, everything relates it to Roma mm. that I read. It was just the backstory of Roma, the real story of Roma. So I think he did a good job there raising the profile of something so horrible so that people can be rightly outraged about it. Um, but to return to the plot, Cleo's in this building and we can see the protests ramping up outside. So it's this really smart camera pan. So it starts with the inside where people are a bit worried, but not too much. Then it pans to outside where everything is unbelievably violent. And then when it returns on that on that same sweep to the inside, they've come inside. So that's where the, the violence outside has entered the inside. And Furman actually points a gun at Cleo and her water breaks amongst the chaos. He doesn't shoot her and runs away, but basically she can't get to hospital enough quickly enough to save her baby, which similarly to how we were talking about Mother Nature being this force outside of her control that she can't, you know, work around. That's what happens here. They're, they're stuck in the car. They can't get to the hospital quickly enough and her baby is pronounced dead and she hugs her daughter for the first and last time. And I think it was it was really different to see a film that doesn't focus on this individualism and that, you know, you as an individual, if you work hard, if you like believe in yourself, you can do anything and overcome any obstacles. That's a very westernized view of things that actually here, you know, maybe maybe you can over overcome these barriers because, you know, you're, you're not an asylum seeker. Or, or, you know, or, or in a country where you, you face huge natural disasters on, you know, a weekly or monthly or and yearly basis. So I thought that was a real moment where, you know, Western audiences who would have seen this film and recognised it because of the Oscar it got. I think that was a moment for us to sort of check ourselves and how we view 
the individual's responsibility for the outcome of their life. Some, for some people, they don't have power over that. And as we mentioned earlier, Cleo sort of falls back on silence when she's having a difficult time and she is silent for a lot of film. And one of the children actually say Cleo's gone mute. Here, the, the, the women are no longer paralleled. And I think this is where the class difference is kind of outlined between the two women that although they've both been abandoned by the father of their children and both left and have been through a tough time, Sophia buys a new car, Sophia gets a new job. And whereas Cleo doesn't have as many options, they go on a little holiday, which um, Sophia invites Cleo to, claiming she won't work, but of course she does end up working. Um, and Sophia reveals the truth about Antonia's absence. And however she does, as I mentioned earlier, say so she's starting a new job, which is actually in a publishing house. Um, and it's revealed that she used to be a biochemist teacher. And I think this little moment is the most we learn about Sophia in the whole film from, you know, personal details level. Even though she seemed, they seem united and strong and sort of going forwards, their abandonment is just juxtaposed by a, a wedding. Again, it's one of those instances where the wide frame really has an impact. They're sat on the left with the children eating ice cream and on the right, we see a bride and groom celebrating. So again, I think it, it was a more realistic demonstration of resilience that despite their ability to overcome the adversity, the women are still quite broken and their pain is quite raw. Then Sophia and Paco go missing in the sea and it's revealed through the narrative moments before that Cleo can't actually swim. Despite this, she still goes in to save them. And this, this is, I think, a little bit different from the other moments in the film and where she does manage to overcome the adversity despite you know, her personal limitations being that she can't swim. And she, she goes in, she battles the elements, she saves the children and brings them out. And with all of the heightened emotions, Cleo's mind you know, naturally returns to, you know, her daughter could have been there with them. And she sobs and confesses, I didn't want her. So when she says that the uh, the family, they're all hugging each other, because obviously, they've just been rescued from the sea, and it's all emotional. Cleo says that she didn't really want the daughter. And Sophia actually says that she loves Cleo, that they all do very, very much. And this is, it's, it's a very emotional moment, because you've just had the emotions running high of possibly the kids drowning and then possibly Cleo drowning and then they get back and and they're all happy that they've been rescued and then Cleo drops this bomb basically saying that she didn't originally want the baby anyway. I think for me that was that seemed like a guilt thing that not that she actually didn't want the baby mm. that she didn't want the baby in the circumstances she'd been given. I, I don't know about the situations for abortions and in that country at that time, but that doesn't seem like something that she'd ever really, really considered. So for me, that seemed like her saying I didn't want her seemed like more of a guilt thing rather than like an actual like mm. active wish. And then just to return to the ending of the film, the family return home to a house with books and no bookshelves because Antonio has taken this time to come and collect his things. What did you think about this choice? Why Why do you think someone would take a bookshelf and no books? Maybe he liked the furniture. <laughs> Might have been antique or I don't know. I don't know if this is a bit far-fetched, but my thought was that he cares more about the appearance of things than their substance. So I think they're a bit like his, his life, that he has this like lovely big house, 
like inside it is this lovely family that he doesn't care about. And when he's driving, when he's coming home in the beginning for his first scene in the film, he meticulously works over trying to get that car in the garage safely, but does not show the same amount of care to, you know, keeping his family together. And for me, I just thought that was a moment that revealed the dodginess of this character. And then finally, yeah, the credits roll um, in, as, you know, typical for the film in a quiet and uneventful scene. So one critic's quote that I wanted us to sort of think about was, this is a film about men who hate women. What do you think? Do you think, do you think that's true? Yeah, actually I do. I think Fermin and Antonio, that can be like correct for them too. I think for me, hate actually suggests that they have more feelings for the women than they do. I think they say that hate is the closest thing to love. And I think it's not a film about men who hate women. I think it's a film about men who don't care about women. I think if they really hated the women, they would, I don't know, come back and have an argument with them or maybe talk to them more, but they just don't care. They just don't care about what happens to them. They don't care about what happens to their children. They're just so obsessed with their own lives that they don't think about other people. So I guess the other thing I wanted us to discuss is, do you think this is a feminist film? I think to break it down, we can think about what makes a film feminist, Mm. but there's obviously so many different perspectives on what is feminist and what isn't. But I think for me, a feminist film is a film that has female characters who have autonomy and they have their own interests, their own goals. And I'm not just talking about sort of career goals, but it could be that they want to have a lovely garden, whatever they want. They have their own goals that exist outside of what, if there is a man in their life, what that man wants. And I think we see Sophia go on a real journey that, in the beginning of the film, all she wants to do is please her husband because she, does, she doesn't want him to leave. And that's why she gets very angry at Cleo for not cleaning up the dog mess in the garage because as if that's the reason her husband left. Like there's obviously a, a lot of reasons for the friction in their marriage. And I'm not saying they're all her fault. I'm sure plenty of them are his fault, but it's, we can be certain for one thing, it's not the dog poo. And I think she goes on this more stereotypical feminist arc of being abandoned by her husband, you know, having that moment to wallow and pity herself, picking herself up, getting a new job and being like, you know what, we don't need him and looking after her family. Mm, Yeah. Whereas Cleo's journey is a little bit different. Another quote from this film is men leave and women survive. I don't know how much Cleo survives. Of course, she survives physically, but she, she goes silent for a very, very long time in the film. And we actually see just, just a glimpse of change in that when she's talking to Adela and she says, I've got so much to tell you about the holiday. And we see her sort of picking herself up again, just more slowly and more in a clear manner. What, what, what do you think of Clea's feminist story? Yeah, so I think it is fairly feminist. It's set in, you know, feminist groundworks. Okay, there is that class aspect where Sophia is obviously more well-off than Cleo is, uh, but they they both have these feminist character arcs where Cleo does pick herself up in the end, so does Sophia. And they're both able to continue their lives after the abandonment of the man. Yeah, without the men. 
And uh, yeah, I think you're right. In, in some other films we've seen, a, a woman might die after this. They might, you know, they, they might die from their own means or another means because their life is meaningless without a man in it. And I think both of these women come to realise how that's actually different for them. And it's not, and I like also that it doesn't put, put your rose-tinted glasses on and it's not like, actually, it's better without them. Actually, no, having a co-parent would obviously be better and make their life easier, but they're managing. So I think it's, yeah, a more realistic feminist message that doesn't girl boss the hell out of their journey. Yes, their life is hard. They've gotten up from it, but that doesn't mean that it's better than it could have ever been. And I think I find that much more honest. So moving on to our ratings, what would you mark this film out of five for quality? So for quality, I think it would get a higher score from me if it was shorter. It, yeah, I think cutting the runtime a bit, maybe bringing down the long shots a bit, you know, just to make it more of a solid hour and a half, maybe something more manageable that way. Mm. I mean, I do like long films. I've, I've watched long films before and enjoyed them. But I think just the hanging on certain shots wasn't necessarily need, needed in some places. Yeah. And th I think that is my only gripe with the film. It is beautiful. The cinematography is great. The acting is great. The writing is great. I mean, like you said, well, most of the actors only got given their lines, not everyone else's lines. So it gave more of an authentic appearance. So I, I would give it a four. It would be, it would definitely be higher if it was shorter. I think for me, I'm probably quality. I'm probably going to give it a five because for me, I, I determine quality by how much effort has gone into something and how well they executed their vision a lot of the time. And I think this film, when you read a little bit more about it, every single tiny thing in these ginormous shots is there for a reason. And they're able to do these really long takes with a moving camera and everything stays perfectly in sync. And I think it just does such a good job of depicting real life in a way that actually undermines a lot of the films I've seen before and it actually really made me realize that I actually don't go to watch films to see real real life depicted and that's actually not what I've been doing all of these years I go there to be entertained primarily mm. and this idea that blockbuster films are real life is this in the same way that reality tv is real life yeah. you know I think I hadn't quite realized how almost dishonest a lot of other films are and this film was more like a documentary so I think I'm gonna give it a five for quality for D&I it's got to be a four hasn't it? it it explores class from a female point of view you know the, the men aren't dominant in the narrative not to say that that's the most important thing but it means we get to see the perspective from a woman and from a, a woman who doesn't have a lot of money and I think I always think about how when you talk to people about their favorite TV shows. Generally, a lot of men's favorite TV shows won't be TV shows with women in, whereas women, for women, there's a mixture of both. And I think it's it's very nice to have seen this, this film, which is about, a, you, you know, a maid, a woman who doesn't have very much money, and it's her story and it's and it's been seen by a lot of men and there's probably a lot of men's, you know, it's top of their list for their favorite films. So I think that was really important. And I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it four point five because I'm. I'm sure we'll, throughout this series we'll see one that sort of breaks those barriers a little bit more. Yeah. So I'm. I'm probably a, around that point as well. Four. Four point five. 
for me, seeing a film in in Spanish with with English subtitles was really nice. I want to see more of that in Western culture. I personally think Western audiences can't be bothered to read subtitles. It's laughable, isn't it? Yeah. We've seen the kind of culture shift with, you know, Parasite, Roma, Squid Game, more and more foreign language films. We're also seeing them recognised in award ceremonies like the Oscars and it is happening, this paradigm shift, but it is, I think it's too slow. Mm. And I think it's also notable that this didn't get best best picture. It got best foreign language film, yeah. which is which shouldn't an interesting... be a category. Yeah, I think it should just, just encompass it in best picture. But then it, it's one of those things where if they didn't have it, would less foreign language films be noticed because they didn't have to specifically look at them? Mm. So it's it's one of those tricky things that it, it's good and it's bad. Both sides are, you know, it, it's a bad bunch. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, obviously, award ceremonies and Oscars and stuff like that, you could say that it, it doesn't really denote the quality of a film. Mm. Obviously, the films are chosen by an academy of people, you know, we don't really know who sits on the Academy. Obviously, in the past, we know it's been a lot of white straight men, hopefully more diverse now. It's still about 84% white men, there which is. is a lot better than it used to be, but still. But still, great. yeah. And what gives them the right to, to say what is a good film and bad film? Why do I have to believe them? And I think the, the main thing is that it brings in a lot of money for these films and these directors and notice. So that's why it's really important to have it. But I think you're absolutely right that it's put on a bit too much of a pedestal. But thank you very much for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we will see you in the next one. 